Welcome to another edition of Throwing Bagels. Kevin Mooney here with you alongside Jason Hamo. Hey, Jason. Hello, fellas. How are you? Hey, great. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. And Chris Douglas here with us as well. Hey, Chris. Kevin, Jason, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And it is a pleasure to welcome the Director of Media and Market Research with Major League Baseball and fellow Oswego alumni from the Jim Tomei Conference Room at Major League Baseball headquarters on 6th Avenue. It is Mark Beck. Hey, Mark. Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? I am great. Thank you so much for joining us. And this is great because we, uh, as we speak, we we speak on Zoom, and we see behind you Radio City Music Hall. Uh, that that's a fantastic view. Uh, as as we as we speak on Zoom, I mean, uh, what are those headquarters like? You're like right in the middle of everything down there. Well, I was working late, so it makes it easier to join you for the recording. And I wanted to try to find some place in the office where you could get some kind of a flex with the view. So this was one of the better <laughs> spots. There's no place to sit in front of the World Series trophy that's up on the seventh floor. So this was maybe the next best option. Well, I hope Kevin's getting a screen grab of this one. So <laughs> I will. I will at some point. Don't worry. Uh, so a, a couple of weeks ago, Mark, uh, the news came out that uh, this year's All-Star Game was uh, a record low in terms of viewership. Uh, when and you were you were leading the group, the group that ran the numbers on on those ratings. Uh, what was MLB's reaction to to that information? Oh, obviously, nobody wants to see television in any perspective. Nobody wants to see their television viewership numbers go down. Uh, television viewership, even though um, people are lo- moving on to other ways to consume video and consume events and watching major events and whatnot, television is still the number one measure for a way to measure the health of a sport because we can, you can compare sports versus primetime programming versus news versus anything else. Television viewership has really become a standard metric and the standard currency for the strength of these things. Now, yeah, we were down versus last year, but if you take a look at the, the way television in general is going, especially during the summer, not as many people are home. Television usage is down uh, ten or seven or eight percent versus last summer, and it's been going that way for years. We're not the only ones that have seen declines in All Star Game viewership. The NBA had a record low. Uh, the NHL had a bounce up this year, but they the last their last two All Star Games were the two, two least watched ever on a broadcast network. The NFL uh, they fluctuate, but they've been trying to change the Pro Bowl for years. Through all of that, Major League Baseball's All-Star Game and the Home Run Derby still the highest rated and most watched sport, All-Star showcases and All-Star skills competitions in any sport around the country and around the world. So we still maintain that place, and that should be a reflection of the strength of baseball and how important the All-Star Game and the Home Run Derby are in in the collective conscious of America during the summer. First and foremost, I've seen a lot on Twitter this year alone, and I've seen it in the past that they got away from the players wearing their own jerseys in the game. Um, you know, that used to be, they used to wear those practice jerseys during the Derby and all the other festivities and then the regular jerseys. But is there any talk of trying to make any changes to, to the game? We were always evaluating uh, all of our major events right after they happen. And we're only a couple of weeks out. We're just now two weeks out since the last all, since uh, the all-star game in Seattle. So we're still going through that phase. Uh, we're still evaluating things. We've done a lot of survey work internally. We've used some outside companies to do survey work on site. 
of talking to our fans. We're doing that all the time. And we're going to gather all that information. We're going to see what what sort of tweaks there are. I can tell you some of the things that come up every now and then. And these are decisions that are going to be made by people way above my head, of course, understandably. But there are things like the, the uniforms are, were a hot topic of discussion, probably more so than in the past. Um, does every team need to be represented on an all-star game? We found that in the past, I can talk about past survey work that we've done, and it's a key driver for people to actually tune in for the opportunity to see their player participating on the big stage. And if you think about this year's game, the MVP and the guy who got the big hit of the game came from a guy on the Colorado Rockies, Elias Diaz. He was, I believe he was their lone representative. I don't have the rosters in my head completely memorized, but I believe he was their lone representative. And the folks in Denver, you know, were thrilled to see their guy getting the chance to have that big hit there. If the Rockies having a tough season, if we restricted the rosters, would he have had that opportunity? Would we have hurt ourselves in some of these markets and being able to bring audience in? Uh, so that's a fair question to ask. And that's one that we're having all the time. Then you can get into the way the game is played. Do the managers pull players too quick? Do we require a starter, a starter to play three innings and things like that? Those are all among the topics that get discussed every single year. One thing I remember um, when I, being a kid, pitchers would generally go for starters, would generally go two innings for the most part. But one thing I read recently, I read an article, I, th- I think it was in The Athletic. I can't remember for sure. But um, they they mentioned limiting the amount of starters for a team in the in the game, right? Like the Rangers and the Braves, they, they, mm-hmm. they dominated the starting lineup. In this year, right? There was a lot from both teams. So, you know, especially especially coming from Seattle, game in Seattle, you know, Julio Rodriguez didn't get into game into ninth inning. Now he had a chance to win the game, mm-hmm. but and then Kevin mentioned this in his blog. Um, and actually, Kevin, you might have mentioned this and you might have mentioned it in your blog also that I'm talking about yeah. it now. But um yes. I thought I read it someplace else also, but limiting the amount of people can start from one team in the game. You know, that's you know, is that a is that something that could be bandied about? It's an idea that we can talk about. I think just to to correct you, the the Rangers did not have eight guys starting and the Braves did not have six guys starting, but it turned out that because they had a number of reserve players that were named as reserved as well. And Mm -hmm. the managers of the game, Rob Thompson and uh, and Dusty Baker, it just worked out that they all ended up being on the field at the same time. I don't think that was scripted in any sort of way. Um, They all weren't all voted in. Uh, by the fans who choose the starters, but it worked out that way. Could we cap the starters, the number of players from a team? Sure, we could. I guess it, without me knowing the labor implications with that, some of that's got to be CBA because some guys have, there are guys that have clauses in their contracts relating to all star game appearance. I think there are clauses in contracts relating to all star game appearances. So that becomes a collective bargaining issue. Um, as far as a cap on them, I mean, if, if five guys from one team get get picked by the fans. I don't think it's, it's in our interest to go against what the fans want if, they, if that's how we do the fan voting. Good on those two teams for having enough fantastic players on those teams and to uh, to be able to have that that many players get named to the to the rosters. Right. Uh, I, I thought um, to, like, let's say the fan uh, at the time the All-Star game happened, the Milwaukee Brewers were in first place and a Milwaukee Brewers fan is watching and they see three Braves and three Dodgers in the starting lineup, not one from Milwaukee, I think there was mm-hmm. a reserve for the Brewers. So, I mean, I could see it's kind of frustrating for a fan of a first place team to tune in and not see any of their guys, you know, in in the starting lineup. 
I totally agree with that. Um, and that be then that goes into how the game is played because there's still the these guys that's that get put into the starting lineups, whether it's good or not, they're going to be out in two innings so that we can get yeah. somebody else, so somebody else can go in to play the game. So it, in that way, you're increasing the opportunity for representatives from all clubs to be able to actually actually play in the game. I know Jason, I see you're a Met fan. Kevin, you're a Met fan. Officially, I root for all 30 teams equally. Um, <laughs> a complete, which is a complete lie, as Kevin can vouch for. Um, but I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure you guys and I as well would have liked to have seen Kode Senga get a chance to put, to pitch in the game, but he didn't get in. I know this happened a few years ago, but I do like the idea of dropping the winner gets home field in the World Series. That was a smart move by MLB to drop that and to let the best team with the best record have home field. That was another thing that was a long point of contention for many, many years among fans. It was very polarizing. I can tell you from survey work that I had done on that in the past, it was almost 50-50. Wow. It really didn't go one way or another. It was like 50-50 or 55-45. It was very close because some – that sprung out of a couple of different things. The first thing, obviously, there was a tie in 2002. Mm. So there was – we needed to have a way to come up with – to get to a winner – and then there was the concern about you know players not caring so much about this about the the All Star game. You'd see you'd hear stories about guys that would show up and they wouldn't even stick around for the game. But the, the dugouts would be empty by the fifth or sixth inning because all these guys had to catch it, caught their private planes going back home. So we wanted to come up with a way to try to place some reasonable stakes on the game to maybe make it more interesting for the fans and for the players. I understood the reason for it, the philo- the philosophical purpose of it that was bantied about for many, many years and then eventually dropped. What kind of uh, trends have you seen, you know, recently in terms of who's watching MLB games? You know, we had heard we had heard, you know, the the younger crowd, 18 to whatever, 25 or 35 was falling off. But then I've heard recently it's actually starting to come back a little bit, it sounds like. Um, and it was mostly, you know, people our age and you know, our parents who are watching more games. What what are the numbers speaking like recently? Well, Jason, you got that right. Um, we are, I don't like to, I don't want to use the, uh, use the line that we're, we skew older. That's probably not, we we try to not have that narrative, but let me, let me bring that to the rules changes that we've instituted this year. Two of the changes we made in particular that we think have had a positive impact on the game. One is the pitch timer. Mm-hmm. Games took too long. We'll, we'll admit, we'll come straight on and say it. It took too long. You'd have, got, you'd have pitchers that would throw a ball 45, 50 seconds, and then the next pitch would come. And it, it just got dragged out too long. Three, three hours and 10 minutes was not optimal for Major League Baseball. It could happen every now and then, but that would be a function of a lot of action during the game. It was too long between when the ball was in play, when it was being pitched, when it was being hit, when there was go- stuff going on in the field. We've successfully cut that down. We've gone from three close to three ten to now two thirty five, two forty, mm. for a lot of games. That's what it was in the back in the eighties and the nineties uh, when you guys were younger, when I was younger, and I think we've had that's had a, a positive impact on viewership because if you can make a more a commit, you're more willing to commit to something if you have a better idea of how long that commitment is, and I think that's helped keep increase interest in the game. Second thing that we've done is relating to the base running, the base running rules, reducing the number of pitch of pickoff attempts, the larger bases, increased stolen base opportunities. There's a little more action in the game, and we've seen we've seen that translate into the the, the skew of our audiences. Uh, median age for television viewership has gone down a couple of years. It's still up there, 
but it's come down a couple of years. There's a higher share of our audience that comes from the 18 to 34s. MLB Network has seen an uptick in teen, in 18 to 34 and persons under 35 watching. That's pretty much the same across all of our network partners, except for TBS, which already was getting or getting a younger audience. So there's some more maybe getting an increase in the in the older viewers that are watching their games as well on Tuesday nights. But their overall viewership is up. So we think the rules changes have had a role in that change in the slowly changing demographic of our fan base. And we know attendance is up all across the all across the league. And I think that also plays into um, the rules changes and the pitch timer. Because again, if you if you know you can, there's a better chance of you si- sticking around for an entire game on a weeknight, you're more likely to buy that ticket. Um, I was listening to a recent podcast. I think it was the Effectively Wild podcast. And they were quoting number, they quoted a few numbers that the night of the week that's had the biggest percentage increase in attendance is actually Tuesday nights. So it's a weeknight. You're more likely to go to a game if you know you're going to be, the game starts at seven o'clock. You're going to be out of there 9.30, 9.45. That's how it is for a hockey game. That's how it is for an NBA game. We're now in that realm as well. And and to add to that, with the, the ghost runner rule, which I'm I'm slowly coming around to, uh, mm-hmm. but the ghost runner rule and the extra innings prevents those, generally prevents those 16, 17, 18 inning marathons that ended two, three in the morning. There was something special about toughing it out through one of those because <laughs> when you go to a game, you knew that, I'll give you for me as a as a fan before I got to baseball, and I'm one that personally is not a huge fan of the 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 ghost runner. I hate using that term. Also, I like zombie runner, but I know it's <laughs> man foot man has been thrown around. Um, there was something it, it 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 there is a tangible benefit as far as the pitching staffs. You're not working destroying your pitching staff on an extra mm-hmm. inning game. Um, it plays into getting knowing that the game's going to end sooner. Uh, you can be a little more creative in extra innings, trying to score that run if you got somebody on second base already. Um, the, the problem with the long games is that everybody is trying to go up there swinging for the fences, and not everybody can hit that home run. So that's what drags them out. I do miss the occasional 16, 17 inning, 17 inning game because you knew if you were in the ballpark and you were of that kind of ilk, the only people that were left were, were lunatics. Um, <laughs> and there's something fun about being around the real crazy people late at night to watch one of these games. Cause all you have is gallows humor and having a great time for those. That's a great point. That, no, that I, is I'm true. Big into those games, but nowadays, nowadays I couldn't stay around just because of train service. My train yeah. would never, I wouldn't get home in time anymore. I wouldn't have to sleep in, in Penn station. Yeah. Now you can, which is nice. You know, you can get out, you're out, you go to the ballpark <laughs> at seven, you're out of there uh, 945, 10 o'clock. You can make your connections and whatnot. Uh, just like any job, uh, like the three of us have, uh, and you, Mark, you have a, a job as well. There's ups and downs in jobs. But what is it really like to work for Major League Baseball? I mean, it's got to be really cool. I, I'm a research guy. as you did. I'm a numbers guy. So it's playing with numbers. So I can give you the, the cynical stance for it is that, I mean, it's really just a lot of numbers. I'm trying to understand how a product is being consumed and trying to ex- explain that to, to interested parties here uh, so they can make better business decisions. My job is the same as somebody that's working on the Procter Gamble account and for uh, working for Procter and Gamble on the Pampers account in Cincinnati. Um, I think the product is a hell of a lot cooler than diapers. Yes. Um, It's a hell of a lot. (laughs) The product admittedly is a hell of a lot cooler than a lot of things. So I feel very, very fortunate to have this opportunity. Um, It's great to be able to be talking about some, to be able to working with, working for an organization 
that attracts 70 million people to ballparks around the country 100 162 times a year 81 times in in every in 30 different ballparks um that's on every single day through the summer it's something that i grew up on and i always dreamed about being being having having the chance to work for baseball if it wasn't going to be on air uh like kevin did like you guys like uh some of us probably did some people i worked with i know kevin got a chance to do the on-air stuff didn't work out for me but i knew if this didn't work out i wanted to be in a front office of a team or a league and i got here and i definitely feel very fortunate before right before joining baseball mark you were uh the manager of market research for the WWE. I mean, that must, that must have been something to be a part of there. It was a similar similar job to yeah. here, pretty much. Uh, it was it was heavily television related. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of how was Fox Saturday Baseball doing? How was Raw and Smack, SmackDown? I think just launched right around then. So it was Raw and SmackDown. Uh, consumer behavior research. I do a lot of stuff here. Same thing. Um, what do people do with their time and money? And I give you the same exact answer. It was a cool product. Um, it was fascinating that WWE was able to, it had a different audience than, ba- than baseball, obviously. It was a younger audience. It was a smaller pool of fans, but the level of passion there, yeah. you didn't have the same level of casuals. They're all, they're all completely avids. And WWE could keep going back and back to that pool of fan but pool of fans and they would continue to consume whatever went their way um it was kind of neat to be in that building because you could you never knew who you were going to run into in that building which was kind of neat um i do recall i was taking the elevator down from tight to go home to go get, get in my car in titan tower i think that's what it was called then hmm. um and you step into an elevator and boom there's stone cold steve austin hmm. and you just look over to him like hey steve hey or i'm sorry i'd say hey steve and you're like hey <laughs> uh so you'd see you'd see a few a few folks there did you have a favorite wrestler back in the day i was a big austin guy uh-huh. um i would loved austin and austin and the rock my growing up randy savage i'm still mad at george the animal steel for ruining <laughs> his wrestlemania yes. three match against ricky steamboat in the silver dome oh, him off. how dare how dare George Steele knock Savage off of the top rope there or, or try to take, I'm sorry, take the bell, the ring bell away from uh, <laughs> as he was about to clock Steamboat while the referee wasn't paying attention. Um, I'd say Savage was my first, was my first one. Uh, Piper was great. Oh. Uh, Kurt Angle, I loved it. Kurt Angle just got to WWE and I loved his character. He was so much fun. And then Austin and The Rock, they were during their, as that all heated up, they were fantastic. Yeah. That was a real. That was a real great time for WWE with The Rock and and uh, Steve Austin. That was like excellent. And obviously, you know, going up against WCW at the time and yep. and and that rivalry just made it even more special. I think. Yeah, without a doubt, and I think it drove both companies to incredible heights, incredible viewership. Um, eventually, would eventually financially it wasn't sustainable hmm. on WCW, and I think that's kind of how WWE. WWF at the time, WWE mm-hmm. outlasted him. Is that it was even though Ted Turner was running WCW, it was just an unsustainable thing. Mm. What brought you into the field of media market research? Were is it something like are you a numbers guy in general? That something something that you know you're interested in, or is it just kind of you fell into the in- industry? 
probably more the latter. I can admit to you that uh, even though I was good in math and science and I was a numbers guy, the last area in the media industry I ever wanted to get into was sales and research. <laughs> I would have I wanted to be obviously I would want to be on air. Uh, that didn't work out. I uh, did the t- I worked at TOP all four years, did probably everything you could do there. Um, worked at the radio station, OSR, when I first got there. Then in 1993, they got their license, became WNYO. I mm-hmm. DJed and did a couple of sports shows, uh, radio shows, did a morning show there. So I was involved with that. I did. I wrote for the paper in the sports department. So I was involved in all that. And the last area in the media business I ever thought I would get into or and I ever wanted to get into was sales or research. And that's all I've done for 30 years. So I don't even think we knew about it in college besides sales, except we didn't, I don't think we knew about market research in college. Yeah. You know, something I wish I knew more about this sort of stuff when I was in college, because now you have now in college, you have, you have a lot more research programs. You have a ton of folks that are taking data science studies um, and coding advanced coding for doing advanced research analyses and statistical analyses. And these are things I never thought I would need way oh, back yeah. when and i kind of wish i did learn some Times of that change stuff. a lot since we were in college yeah things <laughs> have changed so much and these these kids that come out nowadays are, are amazing i, I have a, an intern working for me who's who's brilliant um and i can give him these massive piles of data and he can go write some codes and make sense out of make sense out of all the numbers really quickly whereas it would take me you know a few a couple hours to write an excel macro and whatnot well, speaking of Oswego, uh, you've dressed, wrapped up your term at, in the Oswego Alumni Board. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was about? Sure. I've, uh, I've actually just finished my first year as an at-large member. So I've been on the board 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody that's on the board can serve a maximum of three, three-year terms, so nine years. Mm-hmm. And the Alumni Association is a great, is a wonderful organization. Their main charge is to try to we can to, to maintain and build the connections between the 80 something that I think of the number is 80 something thousand alumni base around the around the country and around the world to keep them connected with us. We go in some way, keep them informed, get them to participate in events, come back to the college, share their time, talk to students, um, create scholarships obviously donate there's a donations there's a financial aspect to it also but it's time and treasure and try to maintain the connection between all of our alumni with the university in any way possible so they'll do the we will go out and create events in various cities around the country uh for people to alumni to connect reconnect with them with their old their old classmates people they never worked with networking opportunities um give speeches mentoring students things like that. So that's what we get charged, we're charged with doing is trying to maintain that connection and also to inform students about what's available for them once they get out of college, once they've got they've gotten their grad, they've graduated and they've got their degree, uh, to connect them with alums who can help them make that first step into the real world. How do you get to that first job? If it's not with this, if it's not with me, I might know somebody that can help help you out in the field you're in. It's building that sort of connection organically as best we can. Um, One of my favorite roles as a member of the board is I'm on the scholarship committee. So there are four or five different scholarships that are specifically endowed through the alumni association that we're responsible for handing out every year. So we go through the, we 
myself and another four or five, four or five alums, we're part of the uh, board members. We're part of this committee. We go through all the applications and we have some pretty extensive discussions about who the people that we think are should receive these applications, not these these uh, scholarships. It's not that something where we just rubber stamp something very quickly. Uh, a couple of times a year, we have some pretty long, I won't say heated, they're more fun, but they're meaningful conversations and real discussions about the merits of the students that apply for these for these uh, scholarships. So we make sure they're going to the right people. Mm-hmm. Um, they get they get awarded in the in the uh, the end of the spring and then or the summer, and in the fall there is a there's a uh, I guess it's tied in with what's it now called what they call it now Founders Weekend. Um, mm-hmm. It's that weekend. Yeah, I think that's what it's called, Founders Week. And I never make it because it's always during the postseason. I'm usually stuck working weekends back here in New York. But there's a scholarship breakfast where um, the don't the 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 donators, the benefactors of a lot of these scholarships, get to meet the people who win the awards, and it's pretty special. I did get to go up one year, and I did meet. I think it was after my first year doing this on the scholarship committee, and I met two, three, or four students, and it's amazing to hear how gracious they are, how thankful they are to have received the award, the awards, how it helps them afford school, how to how they can keep their studies up and how much it it helps them out. And that's what I think that I've gotten most out of out of being on the board is that opportunity to, to know that I'm really providing some tangible benefit mm. uh, to a handful of students, whether in person or in, I guess in this case, since I'm not getting a chance to meet them as an anonymous assistant to helping them get this particular scholarship. Um, You mentioned you work weekends and during the playoffs. What exactly do you do during the playoffs that you, that that you need to work weekends? It's um, numbers are still ratings are available every single day. And there's a lot of eyeballs that want to know how the, how games perform the day before. Uh, So we would be pulling numbers every single day during the postseason and reporting on them. So, uh, I didn't get a lot of chances. Uh, I didn't get a lot of Sundays off during the during Saturdays and Sundays off in October, unfortunately. You mentioned, uh, you know, part of, of being on the board was to create opportunities for alumni to engage with each other, to engage with students. Uh, one uh, element of that is coming back this later this year during Founders Weekend. It's the Oswego Alumni Communications Dinner. Um, and I remember, I think it used to be annual, like when we were students. And that was a great, that was a great thing. And that's Mark, how I met you. Yep. Uh, that's how we know each other is from one of the alumni dinners. And and those were always so much fun. Like way yeah. back when. Oh yeah. I, I haven't been able to make one of those in a long time. I think the, the one, the year that was that, that I went to that scholarship breakfast, I think that was a calm dinner weekend also is going back, I don't know, six or seven years or so. The last time mm-hmm. I made it up there for one of those, the calm dinner was one of my first networking opportunities when I was a student there. And I do recall that somebody I met at one of those actually helped me get connected, not at my first job, but connected to my second job in New York City back in 1994 when I left uh, a television sales firm to join Nielsen Media Research. There's another Oswego alum there who I met at one of these comm dinners. And that's how that connection made. It was a couple of years later that I met that it took me to get over there, but he helped me out. And I've always tried to, in some way, try to pay that forward whenever I can, try to help people get connected. Uh, they do a networking fair. The Alumni Association does a networking fair down here in New York. And when I've made them, I've met a couple of folks there that I helped 
that I was the I was help I was able to help them get connected here for various opportunities. I know at least one person that I, one person I brought in is still working over at MLB Network and promotions. There's uh, somebody else that actually sits ten feet away from me. She's a project manager in des- in our design services department. She's been here for seven or eight years or so. Nice. Talking about us, we go. What brought you there? Were you interested in us? We go. Did you just kind of check it out one day and we're like, oh, this is a really cool school. I think I like it. I'm assuming it wasn't in the middle of the winter when you went up and visited, but it was actually in February of 1989. Ooh, it was. Believe it or not. Wow. Um, before before 481 was 481 between Fulton Oswego was way into four lanes. It was still two lane road at that point. Oh man. Um yeah, actually I, I there were I, I applied to a handful of schools all within New York State. Uh three SUNYs, three privates. Um I was either considering going into civil engineering, which would have taken me to the University of Buffalo, or into broadcasting, which meant Syracuse, Ithaca College. They had just they were just about to open their new school of communications, or Oswego. Mm-hmm. Went to all these all the places. Um, Oswego seemed like the right place the right place financially. Uh, state school state school versus private school is a big difference. Mm-hmm. I had a cousin who was going to school there at the time. Uh, so when my so when I went up for my visit, I came went up the night before we uh, had dinner with my cousin and I talked to her a bunch and she sang the praises of the place. And then I had my tour the next day. Yes, it was cold and dreary. Uh, what do you expect in February? That's what Oswego is supposed to be. Um, but I think what really sold me on the place, the final step was taking a tour of the WTOP studios. And there was a student there who was who was engineering at the time, and he, he was he was engineering the uh, the station at the time. And I poked my head in, and he started talking to me about WTOP and all the different opportunities that were there, and what he knew about Syracuse and how things worked over there. And it was the opportunity to get in get to the school. And day one, you can be doing real stuff at that station. You can be working a camera. You could get on air engineering, everything else, day one that you're there. And that was a big selling point to mm-hmm. me. I totally. think that was a selling point for all of us, right? Yeah. I mean, wasn't it wasn't? Without a doubt. I think, that's sure. the, I think that's the main selling point to pretty much every broadcasting yeah. student that yeah. shows up there. Sure. I mean, totally. you can't beat then waiting till you have them to wait till your junior year to start doing anything. Yeah. And he was so proud. His name was John. I I, he, I think he lives in LA. I think I've met, I ran into him several years, several years later. And I recounted this story of that. He was the one that gave me the tour. Um, how proud he was of the station, how excited he was to show the place off, to, to take time out of what he was doing, to just take 10, 15 minutes to show some kid out from Long Island um, what he what he's doing there and show off what they what the, the opportunities are. And these are things that get passed on from the from the next class to the next class to the next class mm-hmm. was that level of pride uh, that that I think you guys have that I know I have. And that gets passed on throughout the Oswego community forever. So we ask this question to every alum that we talk to on this uh, wonderful podcast that we have. And we we assume, we assume that you were partaking in the Oswego sub shop, vast menu of subs. What was your favorite sub? I'll admit I be, I didn't get into the sub shop until after I graduated. Okay. Um I'm gonna. I'll admit that I was more of a Pudgy's Pizza, the Pudgy's Party Pack thing with my Pudgy's, uh, thirty-two slice sheet pizza, two oh, liters yeah. and two dozen wings for like twenty bucks or whatever. Nice. Um, so I'll admit, I will admit that. Uh, usually when I go back up to Oswego now, I go for the Salisbury Land Chicken sub. 
And uh, so at uh, the sub shop, they put they put the, the Salzburg land sauce on it, get it nice and hot, lettuce and tomato. Very nice. I don't think I've had that one. I don't, I don't think I've, I've never had, had that one. one before. Yeah, definitely not. Sounds delicious, though. Yeah, Salzburg land was another, it was an old wing joint and that went out of business. But the, uh, whatever the the, re- the secret recipe was for the sauce, they got their hands on. It's like uh, spicy? Is it like hot sauce? Like a, kind of like a spicy honey mustard. Interesting. Ooh. It was very good. They were, they were Salzburg land wings, which used to spawn, which here's a funny story. Salzburg land uh, wing joint used to, so this, uh, you, I don't know if this was going on when you guys were there. T.O.P. twice a, twice a year would do a movie marathon. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And we oh, would yeah. do bits in between each movie to kill time. And one of the things that we did for two for a couple of years was the Salzburg land chicken wing eating contest, <laughs> of course, which would always be like, I don't know what midnight, one in the morning or so. Um, sometimes re- ended in some unfortunate results. Afterwards, <laughs> if you know what I mean, but it was great fun, great fun without a doubt made for good television. I think we did a couple wing. We did, we did a couple things well. like that. I don't remember yeah. exactly what they were, but we definitely did a few things similar to that. I, I remember watching a few movies where there were, you know, racy parts and you would see the tape stop and rewind and then go back and play that part <laughs> over again. <laughs> we would never do such a thing. Never. <laughs> no. I was so engineering so that night. <laughs> Uh, that that's funny uh what what about on campus mark like what was your favorite uh dining hall did you have any specific go-to meal while you're on campus i was i was a seneca hall guy okay all four years uh Ah. so i spent a lot of time in uh what was it glimmer glass over glimmer glass but i also spent too much time at wtop so we'd walk over to cooper plenty of times during the day and once in a while if it was a nice day, me and a couple of friends of mine, we'd make our way over to the lakeside dining hall, um, especially if it was a nice sunny day or you're getting a good sunset. And it would be kind of neat because you'd see folks from the station that never see would see you on that side of campus like, oh, what the heck? What are you doing over here? Just hang out for kill two hours there. You're a chicken patty guy, right? I love the chicken patty. Yes. Uh, yes. You never go wrong. I wonder when you're going to ask that Mom. question. Chicken patty was <laughs> chicken patty was uh, you know was a highlight. Everybody would get those men the weekly menus or the monthly menus and circle that. I yeah. have to make it there. Schedule your classes around lunch just to exactly. get, to, to yes. get to it. Right? That day, yes. Mondays <laughs> and Wednesdays, Monday, Wednesdays. You got to make sure you're uh, you're free around twelve thirty or so. That's right. What, what, what did you order? What was on the chicken patty? Oh, lettuce, tomato. Okay, just sit. Straightforward, simple. Straightforward, nice and easy. No way wow. or anything else like that. Just, okay. just the lettuce, tomato. What were your adult beverage locations that you part- partook in when you were legal, of course? When I was legal, technically, I was my senior year, but uh, there were a <laughs> lot of times at the, uh, a lot of times it was the Shacky Patch. That was the media center, the media center hangout, the yeah. media center and student association. That was a senator also. Those would be the, that was the kind of the go-to place, the Shacky Patch. And you spent, quite a bit of time at Romney, uh, I'm guessing. So, and you've been to the new arena as well. Uh, it's an so amazing building an amazing. Yeah. I can't believe it's a D three building. I know. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. It's, it's stunning to think that's a division three building. Um, it's re- beautiful. It doesn't carry the same raw sound mm-hmm. that Romney Fieldhouse had. Not even close. Uh, there was something pretty cool. I wish I could have been there this this game in 2002 when they beat Plattsburgh to get to get the, to win a SUNYAC championship. Yeah, 
Um, I heard that was one that was insane from people. I know that was absolutely insane, but you know, you can't, it, you can't jump around on concrete, on concrete, on a concrete stadium seating and expect to get the same sound that you would get in these 50 year old wooden bleachers in an old mm. airplane hangar. Um, <laughs> at least it's a little warmer in the new place. Yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, it could be 20. I remember it would be 20 degrees outside and 10 degrees inside. Romney somehow. Right. <laughs> I don't know how it worked, how so that true. happened, but it did, but it, <laughs> Romney is a, is a, was a, was a great place to watch a game, but the people, but for recruiting and for bringing in top ta- good talent, uh, having a building like that is truly incredible. It's one of the best buildings in college hockey. Not just, and I shouldn't just narrow yeah. it to Division Three in college hockey. You mentioned that 2002 game. I was actually there. It's probably it was it was absolutely the best atmosphere I've ever experienced at a hockey game. NHL any level NHL college hockey. It was the best. Was a, it was a I believe it was a game. Wasn't it? They played a series, wasn't it? So it wasn't like a game three on a Sunday afternoon. It was something like something, that. It was definitely yeah. a Suniac final. Yeah, yeah I, remember. I don't remember. They used to do the mini games. Yeah, like, if they were tied, but that was like. But then they, I think they went away from that and they went did. Yeah, regular yeah, when, when full that. games again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm not this, sure. I don't remember if, what how exactly they that they did it on that one, but yeah. Was that uh, them finally? Did that was, it, was Donnie Patrick? Uh, was did he have the game winner in that one? I think he I had the game I winner. I don't remember. I remember it was it was a defenseman. Uh, yeah. finished four three. That I remember. Okay. Yeah, it was it was a great arena. I mean, there's there's certainly elements of Romney that were great. There's elements of the current stadium that are great. But all in all, it's just a reflection on on how you know strong the Oswego hockey program is. You know, at uh, at a D three level, and you know, like like you said, Mark, it, it's it's a, a rink that a lot of D one schools would be jealous of, without a doubt. And it's it's. The hockey team, even though I know the basketball team has got has actually probably in the last couple of years actually surpassed yeah. the hockey teams in terms of playing success. I know the basket the basketball team made it to the final eight for the first time in school history this year. And I hope the basket and I hope that's going to be reflected in the attendance that comes out next year for them. Uh, but hockey is hockey is the big sport. And for for those of us that want went to a school, go to we've got we go to a school. That is the collective gathering point for the school. Every every university needs something like that, and we're not a big Division One state, you know, super sized land grant university. We're a small small state university, uh, but we don't have a sixty thousand seat football stadium to go to every sun every Saturday in the fall. This is our collective gathering point. Yeah. This is the symbol of the school. It's the symbol of the of the town. In it's great to have that kind of gathering. And you, this is this is something that gets reflected in some of the scholarship essays that we read, is that they talk about uh, what goes on. One of the one of the scholarships is what how do you describe the campus today to somebody to somebody from 50, 60 years ago? And that's always something that comes up is how how important those games are, how much it means to the campus, how much fun it is. Um, and how much it, how much it represents a symbol as a symbol of the university around the country. Mark, before uh, we're we're, uh, just a couple more questions or so, but before we do let you go, when I asked you uh, earlier this weekend for this past weekend for uh, a photo of you to use, I know you sent a handful over, but a couple of them you were holding a medal for completing the 50th running of the New York City Marathon. Um, How much of, of running is a part of your life? 
probably way, way, way too much of it. Um, <laughs> but I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I, I, I was, I am a former fat guy. I still think of myself as a fat guy. When I got to Oswego, I was pushing 240. Um, I'm now put, get, trying to get myself stayed down around 160. So that's a lot of that is a lot of that is the running that I picked up in the last 12 years or so. It's a running itself. First off, running. It's an incredible community. Everybody is so nice and supportive in the running community. It's gives me a point of focus, a point of discipline that I probably didn't have when I was younger. Um, it helps keep me in shape without a doubt. Uh, it keeps my, it gives me a chance to clear my mind on a lot of things and it provides a personal challenge, something to, that's, it gives me something to shoot for all the time. I never thought I would be somebody that would run a marathon and I've now done 10 and I'm training for my 11th right now. It's going to be uh, October 1st, the wine glass marathon in the Finger Lakes. It ends in corn, ends near the Corning Glass Works. Okay. Um, I have way too many 4 a.m. wake up calls to try to get out before the sun comes up because it gets too dang hot during the summer. Uh, so I'd rather run in the dark when it's 70 and humid as opposed to yeah. running after work when it could be 85 and humid. But it's it keeps my in some ways it keeps me sane. It keeps me happy and it provides a focus. How do you approach a 26 mile marathon? I can tell you out of this current cycle, I have no freaking idea because uh, my training has not gone as <laughs> well as it has in the past. The idea is not that this breaks it down easily. Um, there is a, one of the running jokes about a marathon is they say it's just a 10K with a 20 mile warm up. Uh, you, you build up to 20, you build up somehow to 20 miles and it's just, you get used to being uncomfortable. You get comfortable. I think you, you hear hockey coach, you hear a lot of coaches say stuff like this. You get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Hmm. That's what, that's what it comes down to is you just get used to the monotony of it, the pacing of it, keeping your mind focused on something. Um, you train with friends, you try to have conversations if you can. You try not to, you you just try to keep your focus during the 20, the first 20 or so miles. And then the last six, you just figure out on your own. The hard part is not, re- to tell you the truth, the hard part isn't the actual race day itself. The 26 miles isn't that hard. It's the 18 weeks of training to get to it that's hard. How many miles is that per training day? Every day changes. You change your oh. workout. One day you're just doing, you're going out and you're trying to pick up your pace over a set period of time. Today I was out for six this morning. I was out for six and a half miles. One day I'm going to be out at a track doing high speed intervals. One day I got to climb hills. And then the long run comes along on the weekends where you, that's when you're trying to build up that stamina. So every single run has a particular purpose of some kind. And you just got to keep that focus. Every training program will tell you that is you, every run does have a purpose in some way. Uh, to get you to that goal. I referee soccer and, you know, we, we probably run between four and six or seven miles, depending on how active the game is. And my legs are done after after that. So I can't imagine all of that. And your, your type of running is going to be different from mine because I'm just Mm. put one front in front of the other, keep going for four, four hours, four hours and 20 minutes, whatever for you, it's running hard, then stopping direction, stopping and starting. That's a completely different thing. And that's going to challenge you in a different way than what I have. But it's just, there's difficulties with that. And it's, I mean, if I was to try stuff like that, I'd probably be falling over at times trying to stop and start and change directions. But for you, you've got that, you've got that. Yep. Very true. I mean, my wife has run a marathon. Uh, I have a bunch. I have a ton of friends who have run the marathon, New York City marathon. I've 
the most I've done is a half. I, I just, I don't know how I don't, I, I don't see how to do a full marathon. I'm like, my, my wife keeps telling me you should do it. I'm doing, I'm training again. And I'm like, I don't want to run on two half marathons. Like I ran one, like, I ran multiple, I ran multiple half marathons. 13 half, miles is a lot. Half, marath- half marathon is a fantastic distance. Cause once you've done one, it's, it's, it's actually, it's a manageable distance. Mm. Which I know it sounds weird to say that, no, but I get it's something it. I you get can it. train for, and it's something that's manageable. It's it's two depending on your speed. It's two hours, two and a half hours, an hour and forty five, depending on how good of a runner you are. Um, yep. But it's something totally. that's manageable. You, depending on the race, it could be a hell of a lot of fun. Depending on which ones you've done. Yeah, the New York City Marathon is something different. I, I it's a completely different animal from any other one in around the country. I'm sure around the world, it's a completely different animal from the start to the end outside of the times you're on the Verrazano bridge or the Queensboro bridge. It's wall, pretty much wall to wall people the entire yeah. way. Half of them have crazy signs. Half of that. Everybody's out partying. There's lots of noise along the way. There's bands along the way. And for, for me, I'm, a, I'm, I'm born in Queens. I grew up on long Island. I've been living in, the, in New York, New York city, this is home and doing it on your home through the city, your home city, this city is something spectacular. It is so much fun to be out there cheering. It's so much fun to be out there cheering. And that's what really got my bug as I started cheering during the marathon. It's so much fun to be out there cheering. It's so much fun to run that race. It's a long race. It's one of the hardest courses because it's very hilly it is so such a blast to be part of it. I've been in Queens for the, you know, for the marathon, you know, in like uh, Long Island City, cheering people on. I've been on First Avenue up in the Upper East Side um, and I've been on Fifth Avenue. And it's crazy because everyone tells you, everyone tells you, you come across that bridge into, into Manhattan on the Queensboro Bridge and it's like a whole new world. Like Queens is great and the people in Queens yep. are great, but we come in, come up first Avenue and then you, and then you, you're, you're getting cheered upon the whole way. Then all of a sudden you cross over into the Bronx and there's like very little people there. Yeah. And then you come back across again. And then all of a sudden there's like people everywhere cheering for you and then going down fifth Avenue. It's a, it's, it's a sight to behold. It without a doubt. And then you need that support. You really do. There are times when you need that support where you think you're done, um, but you don't want to be the you don't want to be seen walking in front of all those people, and that can keep you going. And let's not forget that the New York City Marathon is run by an Oswego grad. That is, yeah, Ted Metellus, class of 1997. Somebody you should try to get your hands on. Um, We've tried one of these. <laughs> He's a good, he's a, he's, I've met him a few times. He's spoken at, at my running club in Queens before a really nice guy. He's very busy. He's tough to get, yes, he tough to get a hold of. Uh, Cause he's out at every race on Saturdays and he's got a lot of stuff going on during the week. Uh, he's the race director. I think I forget his title race director of the New York city marathon and vice president of special events, something like that. Uh, but a really good dude. Uh, I just want to let you guys know, I have looked up the, Oswego Plattsburgh game from 2002, 2003. Kevin is right on the money. Don Patrick scored the winner. Wow. And John Hurlman scored an empty netter to make it 5 3. Nice. Oh. nice. See, that, that fourth goal is the one that the place just erupted. Yeah. I'm not sure that it, I, it I didn't was remember late, the story it, it was late in the game, too, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. It was 1803. Yeah, yeah, very late. And there was, was a, what a team. Two what, a, left. what a team. 
Yeah. Lukajic scored one goal. Carrick that was the name goal. I was thinking of. Mike Lukajic. Don Patrick scored a goal. And then John Herlman. That's that was a that was a hell of a team we had right that there. That was very that good. Was, team. That was the team of correct me if I'm wrong. That was a team that went to Norwich, lost the yes. lost the, lost the final. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Norwich. Yeah. Those yeah. are some uh very uh very interesting fans up there in Norwich. Yeah. <laughs> I, that's a military I, school. Yes. Yeah. And then, I, uh, we won- then we wanted in 2007, first year of the new building. That was up at Superior, Minnesota. Where the hell was it? Superior, Wisconsin, or was it Duluth, Minnesota? I forgot exactly where that one was. We beat one of those. Middlebury. Middlebury, was Middlebury in the second. Yeah. And, uh, beat Middlebury. Forgot who it was we beat in the final. Was it or was it Middlebury? In the no, final? Middlebury was in the final. It was the final. That was overtime. Yeah. Garen and that was Rice-Weather. one that we always lost to. Also, we could never get over them either. Middlebury. Yeah. Yeah. I went to four straight Frozen Fours after, not long after that. Three in Lake Placid and one in Minneapolis. My wife's got family who lives there, mm. so I flew out. Uh, they played it. Uh, played a Frozen Four. At, I think it was called Ritter Ice Arena, the uh, on the campus of the University of Minnesota. Lost all of them. Only once we made lost the first day, the the semifinal. Three of the four times I went. Yeah, I went one year, and I uh, they lost. I think it was to I think I think it was to Adrian. It was either Adrian or Norwich. Yeah. They lost. Adrian to, was the one. Adrian, I think, was the one in Minnesota. Uh, mm-hmm. Then it was it was in Lake Placid, and I was like, okay. I, I checked out of my hotel right away and just drove home. I was yeah. like, I'm not staying. <laughs> it was a two night, but unfortunately, they charge you for a two night minimum there yeah, sure. because they they have yeah. you over the bag. They can't. But I was like, what what am I gonna do? I don't want to go see them play tomorrow. I don't want to go see tomorrow's championship game at this point. Right. So I just drove home. I was like, dumb done. Drown my sorrows when I get home. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Mark, uh, thank you so much uh, for for taking the time, spending some time with us uh, on the on the podcast. This was a phenomenal interview, and uh, you know uh, we wish you all the best uh, in your uh, c- continued su- success at Major League Baseball, and we hope we'll keep in touch. I really appreciate the invitation. I'm flattered that you invited me, and I uh, I hope I wasn't too boring for you being a numbers guy. Uh, Thank you to the three of you. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. And that was Director of Media and Market Research with Major League Baseball and Oswego grad, Mark Beck. That was just another another terrific interview. That that was a lot of fun to talk to talk with Mark. Yeah, it was great. Um, You know, great to hear the insight of exactly what he does, you know, at at MLB and how they how they do all that all that behind the scenes you know, trend, trending type stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he, you know, he hit it on the head with, man, I wish I knew more about this when I was back in college. Cause it, yeah. it is very interesting stuff. Like to, to think about like how ratings are and like all the data that goes into, you know, your broadcast, like your broadcast partners, I should say. And, and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's just fascinating stuff. But to th- the thing about that is, is back then it was like compared to today, like there was no data science. You so know what different. I mean? Like yeah. today, we would that's just a regular class. You know, that's just yeah. like that's just a, a business analysis class or business intelligence class. Like you learn that stuff there, and that's what he does pretty mm-hmm. much a lot of that stuff. So it's so it's so ingrained in today, whereas we didn't have any of that kind of stuff. Like computer science for us was like, yeah, dot net, you right. know, DOS, like whatever. Before we go any further, guys, I think we should, uh, we should thank the Oswego alumni magazine. Uh, we should thank, um, 
the uh, director of Com- communications there, Margaret uh, Spillett, and Ethan Stinson, who uh, editorial assistant with the magazine, who wrote the article about our podcast in uh, one of the recent Lake Effect newsletters. We are uh, truly grateful uh, for that. Yes. And, and, and we could not thank uh, the Alumni Association enough uh, for, for doing that for us. That was really nice of them. Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, shout out to my son. It's his sixth birthday today. We had a uh, birthday party for him over the weekend. And, you know, I had family over and I would say majority of the people that were at my house were like, that was a great article that you guys were in it for your podcast, you know, and I don't even know if they listened to our podcast, to be quite honest <laughs> with you, but they read the article. That's you yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's that's awesome. That's really awesome. <laughs> I mean, I guess this is something. I guess I guess at least they read the article. Yeah, and you know, uh, being in the uh, de facto public social media person that runs the accounts, we had a lot of hits because of that. So, and on the socials, and if you didn't know by now, we did start an Instagram page. So you'll see my face yammering every now and then about what's upcoming. Maybe I'll throw out some show secrets, but maybe not. But thank you to the Alumni Association. Really appreciate it. Yes. Yeah. Very much appreciated. Right. Not only uh, Insta, right, Chris? We also have a Threads account. We do. Yeah, we do. We do. Okay. That's, that's attached. That's attached to the yeah. Instagram. The I call it the gram. I don't the know if gram. that's accurate anymore <laughs> or not. I don't know what the kids call it these days. It's online. Uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> and now Twitter is no longer Twitter. It's X. The hell is that? I don't know. Come on, Musk. Don't even. Uh, don't even. Let's not even go there. Well, let, we'll just say that our logo on our Squarespace page is going to remain the bird. That's right. For as long as Squarespace allows it to remain. That's exactly. Right. Yes. <laughs> Until they change it on us, it's not going anywhere. <laughs> well, speaking of Twitter, uh, I found this wonderful little tidbit, uh, courtesy Front Office Sports. And if you've been living under a rock. Uh, in the sports world, uh, then you would know or not know that Saudi Arabia is really getting in the sports, huh? <laughs> They're just dishing out money. Dare talk about that way into sports right now. So apparently, Killian, they've they've offered out. So the club in Saudi Arabia, Al Halal, has offered Killian Mbappe. This is just a salary, seven hundred and seventy-six million dollars to play for one season. For one season, that does not include the three hundred whatever million dollars that that uh, for a fee to Paris Saint Germain from Al Halal. That's over a billion dollars for one player. That's crazy for one year. For and one that, year. How many games is that? I, it depends. I mean, in I'm, the Saudi league, they're how many probably games playing they play? 30, 35 games. Okay. Yeah, you know, but but dude, no, I, I just I just don't get it. I I. It, for someone like him, like all right, let's take his perspective for a second, mm. right? It's almost impossible to walk away from that kind of money, right? Like it's almost impossible. But at the same time, you're almost like selling your soul. So do you wanna do you wanna sell your soul and go play for this ridiculous, egregious amount of money, or play in a real league that has better talent, better better all around? And make okay. You're not making seven hundred million dollars, but you're sure as hell making a lot of money. Yeah. Before I say what I want to say, I, I just want to compare a salary to other salaries of of notable athletes around the world. 
and actually kind of here in the U.S. Uh, LeBron James, all-time NBA earnings, $531 million. Patrick Mahomes, deal through 2031, $494 million. The Arizona Coyotes are only worth $450 million. <laughs> <laughs> the Mets payroll is $367 million, okay? And, I'm, and the NFL salary cap, just for comparison, $225 million, okay? $776 million for Kylian Mbappe. So, Steve Cohen wouldn't show out that money. No, not even close. He doesn't have that money. Dude, he doesn't have Saudi Arabian money. No. Saudi Arabia is trying to, quote unquote, normalize itself as, you know, this country where everyone is welcome except for LGBTQ. Come on, man. No, no one's getting fooled by this. I mean, it's 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 just a marketing ploy. It, they're not going to get Kylian Mbappe. I can't I can't see him going there. I can't. He's 24 years old. I mean, Ronaldo did it. So Ronaldo's 37, 38 years old. I, I understand that. And no one but... wanted him. <laughs> he was negotiating with MLS to play uh, before he came. Before he he did his deal with uh, I don't know. I don't remember what club he's playing for in Saudi Arabia, but he was he was going to try and get a deal here in, in MLS, and that didn't work out. And Saudi Arabia is not at the level of MLS. I don't care what Ronaldo no. says. It's not. It's not. There are so I mean, many Messi more better players in MLS than there are in Saudi Arabia. No offense to the Saudis that play in that league, but it's just not at the same level. Our website has gotten hits from Saudi Arabia, so you should be <laughs> listen. They're, they're on to you. They know what they did. <laughs> uh, sp- speaking of uh, speaking of the the international game, uh, women's World Cup. The women begin with a. 3-0 defeat of Vietnam. Uh, they move on at the time you're listening to this. It'll be Wednesday. Uh, later tonight, uh, Wednesday night, they will take on the Netherlands, which pulled out a uh, 1-0 victory uh, over Portugal. Uh, mm-hmm. So yep. uh, are things kind of where you expected them to be at this point, Chris? Yeah, I mean, so they didn't play their best match against Vietnam, uh, but it was, it, was, it was never in doubt. Uh, it was a little sloppy, uh, and I think that's kind of expected sometimes with the first match, a little little cagey here and there. But you know they got they got a couple early goals in the first half, and it, it was just kind of smooth sailing from there. It'll be it's going to be a much tougher test against the Netherlands, no question about it. If they can get a result in that game, and by result I mean if they get three points, then you know the, no worries for the last game. It's just you know it'll come down to uh, Portugal and Netherlands for second place. So if they can get that result, smooth sailing into the next round. Uh, I'm still confident that the U.S. will win the World Cup. I have I still have no doubt about that. All right, I think that'll do it uh, for today. So thanks again to Mark Beck, director of media and market research with Major League Baseball and fellow. Oswego graduate for joining us. Please check us out online, throwingbagels.com. You can email us, throwingbagelspodcast at gmail.com. Jason's got a blog coming up uh, next week, so please stay tuned for that. And uh, we will see you again in a couple of weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.